welcome or welcome back, as you well know. How is everyone? <laughs> Hopefully good as we throw that into the world where we won't get an audio Bye. back yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Ella. And today we're going to speak about a theme, which is kind of a different type of episode because I feel like we've done subjects, but not a theme. So today's theme is light, given the darkness of December. <laughs> yes. And this is an, this is Ello's idea. And we also discussed and decided that we don't know what the other person has brought to the table for this uh, episode. Aside, like, I know Ello will be talking about Dante and Light because I just know that that's her background to an extent and, like, her research. And I bet Ello is expecting me to be coming with some religious or theological medieval things on Light. But other than that, we have no idea where we're going to go. So hopefully you enjoy this uh, bountiful, illuminated ride. Ello, why don't you get us going? Um, Of course, that'd be lovely. Okay, so... I realized after proposing this that basically this is what I did my dissertation on, kind of. <laughs> um, the reason for this theme was is because in the UK, we've had the time change. And in the UK, in winter, if anyone's been or lives here, they'll know that it gets, it's basically dark all day long and all night long um, because of how, you know, you get up and it's dark and you go to work, you go to school or whatever, or you, you do your thing and then like you leave at five or six and it's dark. Um, and so the contrast of this that came to mind is the idea of like, somehow in my mind, I had like an idea of like churches and a fresky and things like that. And then I thought, oh, I've done something about this. I've done something about light. Um, and so that's where we decided to go on and as I was preparing for this I was like well can't do this without talking about Dante because Dante's paradise is based on the idea of light and so for those of you who've read him you might you know have an idea of things that you'd want to listen to but often Dante isn't Dante's paradise isn't something that people like to read because it's kind of always the same mm-hmm. um, and it's very theological which is great because Megan's going to give that context <laughs> But it's also got like this metaphysical idea that paradise is basically just light and all images and geometry come into place um, with an idea that God is illuminating everything. And so the the poem's basis of that um, book is about circling around how light illuminates one person more or less depending on their valor and their importance and what they've accomplished. And that everything's reflection. And so the poem itself does that, which mm-hmm. is amazing. But I think that it is something that's kind of difficult to dip into if you are an external reader, because it's got like that sense of theology and like having to have a background, but also it's very difficult to imagine. So when I'd done my dissertation, I had looked at like illustrations of that because it's quite an interesting, complicated idea of like, how do you illustrate the ineffable? And how do you illustrate light? How do you create something that doesn't have definition that is a basically a narrative poem into an image? So that's how I thought of that. And so for you guys, um, I have a few interesting little things to like 
read and hopefully get you obsessed on this as much as I am, which maybe is not a good thing because we were just saying how like sometimes when you really like something, it's kind of difficult because then it's just that all the time. Uh, and then you end up hating it. So I really hope that I just convey the nice things about this rather than <laughs> the bad things. Um, and so without further ado, I'll start with the first canto. I'll just read like a few little bits so that you get an idea. So canto one, I'll read the Italian and then read the English. And then we can kind of, Megan's great for this. We'll just like jump off like what we see and what we think. And then I'll do a few of these and then like pass it over to Megan um because I think that might be interesting or we can jump in and discuss and whatever so it starts like this la gloria di colui che tutto muove per l'universo penetra e risplende in una parte più e meno altrove which translates um the glory of him who moves everything doth penetrate the universe and shine in one part more and in another less so from the off start light is everywhere it is what moves the world it is what dictates the world with what gets more light and what gets less and so it's kind of it's quite interesting the first thing that you read when you jump into this world is this idea of movement and that light penetrates which is like a, a verb that is very much linked to light and it's quite a strong word it's something you know if, if penetration that's got quite sexual but yeah but but it's it's a strong type of verb it's not inactive it's very active and so I feel like in the illustrations that I've looked at when I was doing this there's like this very like large amount of light and lightness um and so to me I just find it very beautiful and it there's also quite a lot of geometry in that which which shows as well a sense of a different type of theology going on as well. And it mm-hmm. mixes paganism into this quite Catholic um, imagery. I don't know if you, if, if there's anything you'd like to think about relating to this. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, in regards to the, so just a, remi- a refresher, I haven't read any of the divine comedy. So I'm going into this based on what Elo has told me and what we've discussed just when we were working on our dissertations and the fleeting bits that I've read in the research I've done because Dante, as we've also mentioned, is just inescapable, especially when considering um, this. But yeah, so the the geometry and it's a different type of harmony, I guess, is what you were uh, gesturing towards Elo, that there is mm-hmm you know, this is a very Euclidean kind of idea that there's like a sacred geometry that is a harmony in the universe. Um, and that is something that pred- it's, it's ancient. It predates ancient times. There's, you know, very um, like Neolithic ideas. I actually have in my notes, uh, Stonehenge and that type of sacred geometry in regards to the solstices and everything. Um, but we can kind of get to like keep that in mind and build on that later because I don't want to lose the other threads in this amazing introduction to paradise um and I also want to return to the idea of penetrates but first um in purgatory and hell are those kind of like descending orders of light elo like is hell what is hell's illumination like and what is uh purgatory's respectively 
So it's quite different. So in hell, it's all darkness. It's all darkness and fire. Mm-hmm. But it's like cyclical. So you basically can't move forward or backwards. The way that the souls are allocated to hell depends on the types of sins that they've committed. Right. So um, the worst types of hell come from like Canto 5 onwards in the different realms. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, all types of sins are punished in one or in more than one way. Um and the idea with that is a time there stops. It okay. never begins and never exists. Whereas when you're going, purgatory is basically a stairway, mm-hmm. kind of like a stairway to heaven. And there's an idea of time because the, the idea is that you're moving towards going back up. And so the more you go to the beginning of purgatory, the souls are trying to escape and trying to move forward and, you know, amend their deeds um, mm-hmm. and try and, like, understand how to move forward and go to get to heaven. And um, time there is quite important because you have to pay off that time in which you're in purgatory to move up to paradise. Right. So those souls are kind of on their way to being saved. Um, whereas in hell, like, it's just no time and it's just pure darkness. So there's a big contrast when you get to heaven because there's no la- there's light but there's no time mm-hmm. and there's no definition of like earth venus whereas in purgatory souls look the way that humans do okay um yeah i remember last week when we talked about buffy and the depiction of heaven in buffy yeah that uh that was a very dantean paradise that was like your um input yeah. on that um so let's so the idea of penetration I'm kind of glad you brought that up because in medieval um study of light from the bits that I've done penetration is really important actually because theories of light in the middle ages were directly related to the science and study of the eyes and how light comes from and leaves the eyes um for a while it was believed that our eyes like projected all the light rather than reflected or absorbed it which I find quite interesting and this is like I'm going to try to do this without getting super it gets really complex in ways that I like don't even really understand because it is like a really rich field but just kind of thinking of God as light, right? Um, this is a very uh, Judeo-Christian idea, and how, you know how you can't see the angels because they're blinding light and everything. Um, in the book of James, so uh, James one book or chapter one, line or verse seventeen, God is described as the Father of lights, and in Psalm thirty-six of the Old Testament, uh, it reads, "In thy light." shall we see light, which I think is really uh, in line with what you've read, Elo, that light begets light Mm -hmm. and in such a way that there is no shadow, which, you know, is like the negative space and potentially bad for lack of a better word. Um, And so this like idea of rays of light penetrating every corner of the universe, but remains with its like singular source, aka God, uh, is you know discussed with the divine logos, with Christ, 
and um, lots of different theologians thought about this and primary and secondary types of light, accidental light. Um, but one thing, and I'm just going through my notes trying to kind of return, but there are really significant theological texts that kind of discussed this. Um, so one is Peter of Limoges' really significant uh, Tractatus Moralis de Oculo, or a moral treatise on the eye, where, quote, after the resurrection, we will see heavenly light and therefore God with full directness, but before that, only at an oblique angle to that directness. Um, so this idea that the ineffable God, you cannot see it until you have officially transcended or ascended. Um, everything's like an angular refraction, which still encapsulates the holy and divine. I mean, so mystics and everyone, what they're seeing is this refraction or this angular idea, but that's not a mutilation of the holy. It's just, it's too much for you to see everything. So uh, that's quite like powerful. Uh, yeah, Roger Bacon, not the um, the artist, but this is Roger Bacon circa 1214 to 1292, so 13th century, different Roger Bacon. Um, <laughs> you know, says, quote, the whole truth of things in the world, because nothing is fully intelligible unless it is presented before our eyes in discussing this oblique angle. And um, we also have John Scotus of Aragena, who was a ninth century theologian and his De Divisione Naturae, or the division of nature, says, quote, in my judgment, there is nothing among visible and corporeal things which does not signify something incorporeal and intelligible um, so the eyes were understood throughout the Middle Ages to be a sense adapted for understanding God. And um, we also have Thomas Aquinas, you know, another name that you just can't escape. And without. His, yeah. Summa Theologica using the term visio to not only mean vision, but also apprehension. And the, the idea that knowing is a visual process. And um, that's really important. And I think that this kind of links to Dante and the whole story, like to experience paradise, purgatory, and hell, it can't, it has to be seen to be understood. Like, as, and then the other um, senses come into articulation with that. But in the Middle Ages, it was sight that, you know, from today's perspective, problematically. Um, because, you know, it can exclude blind people and people with visionary, you know, like, because glasses weren't really a thing and such. But it's kind of like to see it is to believe it, which is quite, um, I think it's an interesting argument considering that God and the sacred or holy is ineffable by definition. Yeah. I was just going to say, for those <laughs> of you who are listening to this and thinking, oh, this is really interesting, but this isn't really my thing. I think that what I was what makes this a very modern thing to talk about is that if you think about all art that has been made, um, the idea of lightness parades, like it, it is part of how we think of the world. And in films and in, in the expressions that we use, this kind of idea of light as having a significance in how we understand the world and how mm -hmm. we see good versus bad is there. So 
whilst having a very medieval root to it, I think it has a very modern um, understanding. Yeah, I mean, harking all the way back to, you know, one of our first episodes when Janina came on and we were talking about um, Sleeping Beauty, Disney's Sleeping Beauty, and how, um, you know, Maleficent and everything that's all dark colors and greens and purples, and then, of course, blacks and grays. And then you have Aurora, who's golden and light and colorful. Or I'm thinking of like Bruce Almighty or any kind of movie or television show where there's a moment of epiphany or discovery. It's like light cascading down onto you, warming you, f- like filling you. And you think of like even yin and yang, right? To bring in Eastern uh, Asian philosophy, like the light is good and the black is quote unquote bad, but they exist in harmony with one another. Like, yeah, it's all, uh, it's all connected, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to continue on, yes. so as we're traveling through heaven, so when we're traveling to purgatory and through hell, as we've intimated, you know, you're traveling in like in the underworld and then stairs and going up. Whereas when you're traveling in, traveling in heaven, the experience is so superb that you travel through planets. So, you know, there you have like that kind of um, medievalness of it, like this <laughs> understanding of arch- um, what's called astrology and things. Um, and the more you travel through them, the more the experience becomes intense. And so this poem is also the poem of loss of words because the experience is so out of this world that the words that you will cast on recounting the story um, aren't enough mm-hmm. and so this tension that is there from the very beginning um, creates very poetic poetry but it allows your mind to kind of imagine what is happening and how it's supposed to look because you get to the end of the poem where the um, poet or the narrative voice just loses all um, you lose all confidence in it because you can't trust that like the words that they say themselves like the words that they are saying don't have any value because the experience of it is so above and beyond that you just wouldn't be able to imagine it mm-hmm. so another passage I thought was very cool and in theme with lightness is Canto 14 um, where Dante is with um, Beatrice in this, the um, heaven of the sun and he meets Solomon. Um, but I'm just going to keep to the lightness. Um, and so the passage is, Diteli se la luce onde si infiora vostra sostanza rimarrà con voi eternalmente si come li è ora. Ed è Ecco, intorno di chiarezza pari nascere un lustro sopra quel che verrà, per guisa d'orizzonte che rischiari. Ben m'accorsi io ch'io era, era, era più levato per l'affocato riso della stella che mi, pa- mi paera più roggio che l'usato. The translation to that is... And if it do remain, say in what manner? Anner, after ye are again made visible, it can be that injure not your sight. As by a greater gladness urged and drawn, they who are dancing in a ring sometimes uplift their voices and their motions quicken. So as that arising devout and prompt, the holy circles and new joy displayed in the revolving and the wondrous song. 
it's quite interesting how like the idea of traveling in this world and like seeing where your soul is going and the lightness that goes in that I thought it's just quite like a beautiful passage especially because in modern times we see the sun as being the center of lightness and it's got it no longer has that kind of mystical maybe it does I don't know it does no, maybe no longer has this mystical understanding of what light can do and what light brings but it has the idea that it warms our planet and it brings lightness to the life to life and I just thought it was quite in theme with this yeah and um I mean this idea that language that this experience has gone beyond language that uh you know language falls flat is kind of almost a postmodern idea you know of very like language fractures and splinters and uh kind of disintegrates because it's just it can't encompass or relate to there is no like sign that evokes this you know if you want to go into semiotics and everything um and yeah like the idea of movement and spinning is interesting because there's this like force within that uh but I guess I'll respond most specifically to this I you know at the end your kind of commentary on it of the uh the power of the sun and like how we think of it today and yeah it's kind of just there and we celebrate or acknowledge on our calendars you know the solstices and full moons you know your calendar will say it's a full moon it's a waxy moon it's a waning moon it's a new moon but like that's kind of just lost it's not always something that is a part of life the way that it was pre I would argue I guess industrial times because we have electricity like light can is at our fingertips it's something that we take for granted yeah because you know the argument might be oh well you know they had candles and fires and everything in the middle ages and before and like yes that's true but that takes a lot of candles for these large open spaces and a candle or a fireplace can only give off so much light. It also gives off heat and how much wood do you have or how much fat or tallow do you have to make the candle? You know, you have to be economical in the way that you're using these resources in a way that is alien to the modern population, I'd argue. Um, but yeah, kind of just like returning, I guess, to Stonehenge, right? This is, again, pre-medieval, but I think is just such a graspable, like everyone knows something about Stonehenge, right? And um, this stone circle is was built to align with the sun and most specifically the winter and summer solstices in a way that, um, you know, the sacred geometry that we were discussing earlier is a practical geometry and that this precise location was chosen in ways that we still don't quite understand, though there are um, archaeological and geological studies that the glacial paths that go past Stonehenge run on the specific uh, solstice, like lines, like in a way. Uh, but on the solstices the sun and or moon go directly through the center of this stone circle and like there was a lot of care and deliberation and you know the stones all have fancy names but there are like station stones that make a perfect 
uh, rectangle around the stones. There's the heel stone, which is the one that is the first contact with the sun. So this idea of the power of aligning the celestial sphere, the universe with the earthly terrain or sphere is something that I think is really powerful and um even medieval churches and stuff were aligned you know generally we think okay they usually have it where the altar is like east facing so that when the sun rises it first touches the altar you know it illuminates so the idea of like let there be light mm-hmm. the coming of Christ and everything like that um and so you have just that basic relationship but then you also have other churches like I read this article that was quite uh, interesting from uh, author uh, Alice Isabella Sullivan about the power of sunlight in medieval churches in this case example in um, what you see in Moldavia and now Romania uh, the church name I for the I don't speak Romanian but it's the church of the holy cross at Petrauti Monastery in Romania, but there are a lot of incidental accents on that word. So I apologize to any of our listeners that speak Romanian or know the proper pronunciation of that word. Um, But this church is a case example of the sun hitting at certain times of the day on certain days of the year, statues or paintings in the church that then illuminate with the natural light of the sun images of saints of christ of the eucharist and so again this idea of the sun being powerful and it's the closest i guess in it that we can get to god like in our existence of like harnessing it you know um and i just think there's something really beautiful in that and um so yeah that was like a little bit of my two bits on that um and Ella when you said that they were like you know dancing hand in hand in a in a circle each uh element right so have paradise not heaven but paradise purgatory and hell they are each constructed in rings correct um so yeah, I guess it's also continuing with that geometry. It'd be interesting if like hell was angular and sharp and harsh and had shadows and then heaven was circular. I think it does kind of, it is kind of like that. Um, but they're called circles, the circle of this, the circle of that. But it is, yeah. it's the way that most people imagine it. It's kind of like a, like kind yeah. of like a triangle, like yeah. going from the depths going upwards, and it's supposed to be like below the earth, mm-hmm. so kind of like a crest. That I'm guessing that's how he got his imagination toward that, because like the idea of like the warmer it is, the more hellish it is, and the more dirty and pungent and stuff it is. Hmm. Yeah, I really just need to read the Divine Comedy, but I think you would have a great time. I feel like it is like right down your alley. Yeah, I'll get there eventually. You will. You just have to. <laughs> it's, I think it has to be your moment. Yeah. It's one of those books you can push. Totally. So, Elo, do you have any other... Yeah, I just wanted to finish with the final bit. Okay, okay. so Canto 33. Um, and this is where Dante has, in the previous cantos, he's now 
no longer in circles. He's um, basically arrived. He's in the Imperium, which is just pure light. And this is mm-hmm. where you can't trust him anymore. It's the last three cantos or so. And he meets the Virgin Mary and like he has all of these like ecstatic experiences. Mm-hmm. And the poem finishes with him seeing the resurrection of Christ, him seeing all of these things that, you know, are very much part of our culture. But the poem ends with this final um, verse, which I'll just read, which is L'amore che muove il sole e l'altre stelle, which translates to um, the love which moves the sun and other stars. And obviously you can, it has a very Catholic or Christian undertone to it, you know, love, the love of God that is like the love that, that has created the world. But it has also this idea that the refraction of light becomes a sentiment and that sentiment we can carry around and we can experience. It was also as a very Christian way of thinking of, mm-hmm. you know, being alive. But I thought it's a very poetic verse. And it's got this idea of light and stars and it's a theme. So I thought I'd read it out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I do think that it's just a beautiful idea. That is something like just that all is love. Uh, And that's a very, you know, I believe it's Julian of Norwich and her revelations of divine love, which came out in 1395, that religion, that God experience is love. And I, I, I do Thank you for sharing that, Ella, because that is like a very beautiful passage that it's all encompassing. And so it's interesting that you stated that, you know, at this point, you can't really trust the words that Dante's using, but it's also so like profound and beautiful. So there's kind of like a double edgedness to yeah. it. And I also think it's just interesting that, you know, Dante was able to experience all of this and then write it or, you know, then like write it down in the the poem because going along a lot of like theological ideas, um, it was like improper to see the earthly realm following such divine light experiences. Like there is um, Peter of Limoges in his treatise gives a warning tale of a cleric who sacrifices his eyes to see the Virgin. And then he's blind afterwards because earth becomes like a type of hell. It's too sharp and ugly and brutal following that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't really know the intention behind Dante's writing of this. Um, the the Inferno is what like moved him. The reason that he right. wrote this is because he got exiled from Florence because of like the terrible corruption that there was at the time, mm-hmm. which is an ongoing theme since forever. Um, <laughs> but like, it is true. I, I think you're right. Like, it takes quite a lot of guts to write about paradise in that time, especially. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's such a theme, right? You have other particularly women mystics do the type of um, religious experience. I mean, if anyone wants to read about that, I highly recommend Caroline Walker Binham's uh, influential text, Holy Feast, Holy Fast. And it's about specifically women and their experiences of faith, because it's very different than men. And part of it's just due to the way that society was and the way you're allowed to express yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, But also a lot of the medieval female mystics use light and these kind of emotional experiences to express their love and the divine. So, you know, I already mentioned Julian Norwich, 
Um, perhaps the most famous in regards to our theme of light would be Hildegard of Bingen, Hildegard of Bingen, um, who was a late 11th. She was born in 1098, so very end of the 11th century. So a 12th century mystic. And she, you know, she wrote letters, had visions, prophecies. She wrote music. She's considered the first kind of author of modern, or not modern, but like like her the music she composes still performed today. Like that's how big of a deal her music was. And that her idea in her uh, Sivius book was that, that was written in 1151, 1152. And it's her recollection of her visions illustrates divine revelation and manifestation as quote, then I saw a most splendid light and in the light, the whole of which burnt in a most beautiful shining fire was the fire of a man of the sapphire color. And that most splendid light poured over the whole of that shining fire and the shining fire over all that splendid light. And that most splendid light and shining fire over the whole figure of the man appearing one light in one virtue and power. And again, I heard that living light saying to me, this is the meaning of the mysteries of God, that it may be discerned and understood discreetly what that fullness may be, which is without beginning and to which nothing is wanting, who by the most powerful strength plated all the strong places. And that's book two of Sibius. So there's an echo here with Dante, the idea of like light and virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, you, um, and I do kind of know this a little bit, the paradise spheres uh, are each based on yeah, the different virtues that you experience in life. So you have a sphere yep. that's like the warriors of God and Christ. Yep. That's counter um, 1415. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and actually, can I, there's a little yeah. bit. Uh, Dante put one of his ancestors in that bit. So like to show the valor of his name. So <laughs> it's kind of funny here. Yeah. Ah, cheeky. Um, so yeah, just something in that and like light and power is just really beautiful. And I don't, really know else much more like to say but it is just it is like light is a theme throughout the middle ages and it's not because it was a dark ages I want to like re-articulate that um yes it was perhaps darker than what we have today because as I was saying earlier there was like limited illuminating resources um but they definitely had these huge fireplaces, rushlights, torches, lanterns, candles, you know, like there was still a lot of light. It's just, it's a different type. And I think that there's almost something more beautiful in the medieval sense of light because they're in tune with the earth. Uh, you know, kind of going back to the beginning where today here in England, it's getting dark at 4 p.m., 4.30 p.m. Just imagine if we didn't have electricity and, you know, you have to use firelight and candlelight to war- illuminate the home. There is like a warmth to that and a comfort. So it feels also just kind of directly related to the warmth and love of God or the divine or the supreme whatnot. And it's also like a very, you know, we think today like lighting is about mood and atmosphere and how you light candles for like sexy time and stuff. And just kind of maybe thinking, (laughs) 
Um, but just thinking like, well, why candles at that moment? And then kind of reflect on what we've been talking about. Not saying it has to be a, uh, take what you will about sexy time being like a sacred experience, you know, that flitters about a lot. Um, and again, this isn't just medieval. Think about the caves of Lascaux, right? With the paintings there, which were meant to be experienced by firelight because it, evoked the sense of moving due to the flickering of the flame. Um, or Rothko, his, yeah. um, his massive paintings, you know, I mean, you don't have to know much about art to know about Rothko because he's got like, you know, those paintings of like red mm-hmm. um, or like all those different colors. They are supposed to be a representation of like divine energy and light. So it's quite interesting in like those kind of dark paintings. You can see that, and he had churches with all his paintings and stuff. Yeah, very one cool. In Texas, and I really yeah. want to go. But yeah, no, there's a a very theological reading or religious mystical reading of Rothko because of like the depths in these colors and how moving they are. Again, that emotional aspect and the different angles, the different light and the way that the light interacts with the canvas is, yeah, it's a great example of this kind of medieval to modern experience, mm-hmm. right? Look yeah. at, think about painted image on a church wall, right? And the sunlight moving and it's illuminating beautiful. certain aspects and then go to like a Rothko painting and the same kind of uh, moving experience. I think that's like a beautiful connection. And yeah, I mean, we've basically covered everything that I had notes wise too. The last thing that I wanted to bring in is a book by Cambridge scholar Seb Falk. I haven't read it yet. It's on my list, but um, this is kind of just like a final throwaway comment, but it's called The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science. Mm. So the, the story follows, takes place in the 14th century. So we're talking about high, late Middle Ages um, and it follows um, a monk named John of Westwick, which, if I recall, was a real figure because I, I discovered this book through the Medievalists.net podcast months ago when their Sebfall guested that Danielle Sibolsky interviewed him. But the book talks about like science and the illumination of science, you know, and how we think that the Enlightenment, literally, like if we're talking about light cascading on knowing, right, um, is a very end of renaissance beginning of what's considered the enlightenment era you know phase of scientific discovery so newton and stuff but folks book is beautiful because it goes again the middle ages weren't this like dark dirty time like a lot like astrolabs and different types of science were being discovered that were foundational and essential to the later um enlightening if you will and so if this is something that interests you, you should um, look at it further. And like the cover of the, it's like the US Canada book is of spheres, like the holy spheres, not just from the divine comedy, but I believe it's not the Scala Natri, it's not the great chain of being. It's, um, I can't recall, it might be like the Corporis Divina or something, but the spheres of the heavens in medieval scientific imagination so just kind of an interesting I thought like tie-in to what we've been discussing yeah Um, I've really enjoyed this I hope you guys have too um please 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 let us know 
what you've thought of this kind of pop episode. Um, and if you want to have your say, always please come and do. Yes, please. And um, yeah, I'm all light talked out. I don't yeah, know about you, hello. No, me too. Me too. Well, A then, very good conclusion. Yes, but, I agree. Let's tell our audience where they can find us. So if you've liked this episode and want to listen to our large repertoire, please know that you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcast, really. We're also on social media if you'd like to interact with us. We've got an email account, modern.medieval.podcast.gmail.com. We are on social media. You can find us on Instagram. Our handle is podcast.modern.medieval. Um, you can find us on Facebook. We've got both a group and a page. It's Modern But Evil Podcast. And finally, we've got a Twitter account, which Megan is the queen of. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter under the handle at medieval underscore modern. And yeah, please, on any of our platforms, reach out to us. Our Facebook pages and groups are quite dry and sad because I tend to forget that they exist. So yeah, please, you know, <laughs> message us there, post there, share there. Let's try to make the community. And yeah, just thank you so much for making this little project that Ello and I do so enjoyable. We really appreciate yeah. and are constantly um, humbled that people take time out of their day to listen to us ramble about stuff. medieval and modern stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And this is Modern, modern Medieval, the podcast. Ooh. Do 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 do